My name is Michael Welch, and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour, airing on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, on occupied Anishinaabegakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Dakota. Our show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is podcast at the site globalresearch.ca. On the evening of Friday, November 30th, George Herbert Walker Bush passed away at his home in Houston, Texas. On the week the 41st president's funerary rites are being conducted in the nation's capital, political figures and media representatives of all ideological persuasions are expressing solemn platitudes to a man now being hailed for his civility, politeness, courage, and his decency. As president, he presided over the collapse of the Soviet Union, leaving the U.S. the de facto sole superpower. At his state funeral, Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney saluted him for his role in establishing a free trade agreement spanning the three North American countries, for his leadership in the first post-Cold War military conflict that was the Persian Gulf War, and for overseeing the unification of Germany, among other great feats. These accolades, however, distract from a much more critical assessment of his role as a major power broker on the planetary stage. A solid argument can be mustered that George Herbert Walker Bush was not only a war criminal, through and through, but he engaged in activities overt and clandestine that would have repercussions for the world we witness today. This week's episode of the Global Research News Hour intends to review that legacy and examine what this more detailed and hopefully more accurate assessment of the man's life and background says about perennial systemic relations that continue to dominate the political and geopolitical playing field in the new century. On this week's program, Soldier Statesman or Criminal War Profiteer, A People's History of George H. W. Bush. One of the greatest controversies surrounding George Bush was reporting that his father, Prescott, had dealings with the Nazis before and during the war. Specifically, Prescott Bush was a managing director of United Banking Corporation, which functioned as a clearinghouse for the business enterprises and assets of one Fritz Thiessen, the steel and coal magnate and industrialist who is said to have been Adolf Hitler's original patron in the early 30s and to have financed the Nazi war machine. The business relationship between the Nazis' military-industrial activities and Prescott Bush was extensive, if the archival record can be believed. John Loftus, a former U.S. Justice Department war crimes prosecutor, began researching and exposing U.S. recruitment of Nazi war criminals in 1981. He has argued that the substantial fortune earned by the Bush family through UBC came from the Third Reich. He said that Prescott Bush and his colleagues directly profited from the slave labor of those who died at Auschwitz and the steel that killed Allied soldiers. Another important figure who revealed these links between the Bushes and Nazis was John Buchanan. He's an award-winning investigative reporter and freelance journalist. He'd authored articles in the fall of 2003 based on his unearthing of recently declassified documents in the National Archives and the Library of Congress proving the treasonous partnership, which extended until well after the war, with virtually no consequences for Prescott Bush or his progeny. John Buchanan joined us recently to break down what the documents reveal and why the revelations matter to this day. Prescott Bush's father-in-law was George Herbert Walker, for whom the recently deceased President 
George H.W. Bush is named. And Walker's Point, the, the place in uh, Maine where the, the Bush family has vacationed for several decades, uh, is actually named for George Herbert, Herbert, Herbert Walker. So uh, George Herbert Walker in 1923 with, with W. Averill Harriman, who would go on to be uh, Undersecretary of State and then Governor of New York State, uh, they made a trip to Germany looking for new business opportunities for the investment, the Wall Street investment bank Brown Brothers Harriman. And they met with Fritz Thiessen, who at the time was one of the wealthiest men in Germany and dominated the German coal and steel industries. And they made a deal to become his essentially uh, investment bank on Wall Street in the U.S. And it just grew out from there. And so when Prescott Bush was courting uh, George Herbert Walker's daughter, and George H.W. Bush's uh, mother, uh, <clears throat> George Herbert Walker wanted him to be more successful and ha have a better life and so on. And so he brought him in to Brown Brothers Harriman. And then as that relationship progressed into the 1930s, they founded a, a company called United Banking Corporation, known as UBC. And it was not a bank. It was essentially a holding company for what turned out to be a wide range of Nazi enterprises all owned by Fritz Thiessen or, in some instances, some of his colleagues like Frederick Flick, who was a co-owner of IG Farben, the company that operated the death camps for the Nazis. Now, there was also another uh, bank involved in this uh, whole setup based in Holland. Am I not mistaken? If Correct. Not mistaken. Yeah, that, that was that was Thiessen. That was Thiessen's bank, uh, in, located in Holland. That essentially, sort of, for lack of a better term, in, in terms of the language we use today, uh, essentially served as a money laundering operation to be able to siphon stuff through that bank uh, into and out of the U.S. That's correct. Now, the um, it was in the summer of 1942, I mm -hmm. believe, where uh, uh, the Congress had to take aggressive actions. Yeah, well, what happened was and, uh, yeah. a, a great newspaper of the era, uh, the New York Herald Tribune, on July 30th, 1942, and the key thing, obviously, there is that the U.S. had already entered the war and was fighting Germany at that time. And uh, so on July 30th, 1942, the New York Herald Tribune broke the story under the headline, Hitler's Angel Has $3 Million in U.S. Bank. But that was just scratching the surface, and even that article did not yet know all of the details of how extensive the network of Nazi businesses under the banner of United Banking Corp. was. But as a result of that article, uh, the, the U.S. government uh, started seizing the assets. So the first thing they seized was United Banking Corporation mm -hmm. under the tra what, what at the time was known as the Trading with the Enemy Act. And uh, then after that, they seized another half dozen businesses, including a cruise line called, a shipping line called Hamburg America Line, and a number of other major uh, assets. 
but there was the, the the network was so extensive that even though they were able to seize those companies, uh, like again according to your own uh, report, the uh, Bush and the, his colleagues were able to maintain those financial uh, uh, benefits up until 1951. Correct, and extensively lie about it. In my second story in the New Hampshire Gazette, which was just about the fact that after all of the seizures in 1942 and 1943, uh, the, the, the Nazi dealings continued until 1951. So. When I went back on my own for a second trip to the National Archives and Library of Congress, uh, that's when I found all of those documents. And, yeah, that, that's it exactly, and they lied about it. I have in my second story, you know, FBI memoranda about the lies they told. And, and you have to remember we're talking about Brown Brothers Harriman, you know, at the time the most prominent and, and powerful investment bank on Wall Street, almost the equivalent of, you know, Morgan Stanley today, and they they consistently lied and covered up and destroyed evidence. So when my when I was breaking my stories, I tried I contacted Brown Brothers Harriman, and and the PR person at Brown Brothers Harriman, needless to say, was pretty shocked to find out that I had the documents. And to say he was uncooperative would be an understatement. And it turns out they also destroyed all of the documents back then, so nothing exists. I, I think, as you're pointing out, the the, the ability to, to cover up this uh, story is seems to be more, or at, at least as uh, interesting and shocking as the revelations themselves. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, and then I'll, I'll tell you the most shocking point to me of them all, and it's particularly again relevant to, you know, all the years since, and particularly now. But one of the documents I found was an FBI memorandum, and it was from an, a supervisory FBI agent to his supervisor in the Justice Department. And the memo was about the fact, and I'm, I'm broadly paraphrasing here, but this is literally, you know, what the memo said. And it said, We've come up with all of this very damaging information about a very powerful American family. What am I supposed to do with it? And he apparently never got any response, and it just kind of went away. And then later on, there was another FBI memorandum that essentially said, uh, we, are, we are aware of the individuals involved in this matter but currently there are no plans to pursue it. John Buchanan was inspired to investigate claims he had heard about President Bush Sr.'s father, Prescott, as having profited from slave labor at Auschwitz during World War II through a company known as Silesian Steel Corporation. Skeptical, he decided to go to Washington to examine documents in the National Archives. I knew I was looking for... Vesting Order Number 242, which was the document used to seize UBC under the Trading with the Enemy Act. So it took me, you know, five minutes to find stuff related to Vesting Order 242, and then I cross-referenced into a bunch of other stuff and cross-referenced it to Fritz Thiessen and things like that. So I, you put together a list of the various documents that you want, and then the archivist goes in the back and just brings out these boxes on a cart, right? So I just start going through them. And, and on the very first day, I amassed probably 
at least 150 or 200 pages of stuff that confirmed all of the, you know, basic stuff that we've been talking about. And what's cool about the process at both the the, uh, National Archives and the Library of Congress is that when you make copies, they're authenticated uh, with a watermark as being from the National Archives, so nobody can challenge them or call them fake or whatever. As John Buchanan examined the material, he initially came to realize he was in way over his head and at first decided to simply hand the materials over to one of the major media outlets asking only that he be named as having unearthed the incriminating documents. Buchanan recounts their reaction. So I call the New York Times, no response. I call the Washington Post, no response. I call CNN, ABC News, CBS News, NBC News, not interested. So I call the New York Times back, and I forget his name, but the bureau chief at the time of the Washington Bureau of the New York Times actually, I I said, look, I'm just going to come to the New York Times office and drop them off in the lobby, et cetera, and he threatened to have me arrested if I showed up. Now, to this day, I don't know why that was. The, the only logical explanation I can think of is he must have thought I was delusional or something, but, but it still perplexes me that he wouldn't take the risk of at least looking at the documents, right? And there was another editor, I think it was from the Miami Herald, that had... Uh... Yeah, the, 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 the editor of the Miami Herald at the time. He and I had numerous, conver- numerous phone conversations before he ended up accusing me of stalking him. Uh, that they wouldn't just, he wouldn't look at him. Hmm. Well, the Associate, once your story came out in the Gazette, uh, the Associated Press uh, did end up kind of picking up on it, but... Uh, not in a way that you were particularly satisfied with. Yeah, they they they, they watered it way down. The, 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 their story was essentially, and, and and the headline essentially was Prescott Bush served on board of Nazi Bank, and they left out all the good stuff. And the the guy uh, Jonathan Salant, the Associated Press reporter who did the story, you know, I called him. He at the time he was the president of the of the National Press Club. And I called him up, and he, to his, to his credit, he did give me credit at the end of the story for, you know, discovering the documents, right? So I called him up, and I said, Jonathan, you know, what happened to the rest of the story? The, the fact that he was on the board of, of, of a company has nothing to do with anything that I reported. And believe it or not, and, and again, I stress, I'm a freelance guy from Florida, and we're talking about, a big-time reporter for the Associated Press, right? He goes, well, I wasn't able to confirm everything you said. And I said, well, Jonathan, I don't know how that's possible since I'm a schmuck from Florida and you work for AP, but if you want to buy me a plane ticket to Washington, I'll gladly take you through everything so you can see it. And, of course, he didn't take me up on the offer. What do you make of that uh, apparent lack of curiosity? Oh, I I have no doubt about it at this point. Bear... Bear in mind, we're talking about, you know, this was 15 years ago, right? I learned the hard way, and boy, do I mean the hard way, that there are certain stories that are never going to see the light of day in the U.S., and the cover-up is thorough and complete, and anyone who tries to persist in getting that story out is going to pay a heavy, heavy price 
as you know, I did. Okay, well, what brings me to my next question, though. What happened to you? When the story first came out, two things happened. Number one, it was picked up by like 400 websites all over the world within probably 48 hours, and a lot of pretty well-known leftist websites in the U.S., like rents.com and stuff. And then I immediately got death threats. So I answer my phone one night, living on Miami Beach, and a voice goes, John Buchanan, 4100 Collins Avenue, apartment 507, Miami Beach. You won't read, you won't live to see the news tomorrow morning. So I freak out. So I call the Miami Beach police. They, I forget what happened and how it happened, but pretty, the, the police came over to my apartment. And fairly quickly, somehow or other, you know, vouched for the fact this was a fairly serious threat. And so the Miami Beach police gave me police protection for like 72 hours. And there was like cop cars in front of my apartment building and a cop in the hallway outside my door. And then, you know, that went away. And then, you know, after that, uh, I got, I got, uh, the, there was a person who was a British, uh, supposedly former journalist and now PR person who I had uh, written an old article about because he was a, he was a promoter in the music business in South Beach, Miami. So I knew him through that. Now his name was Jeremy Labor, L-E-B-O-R. So he claimed he had all these big time PR connections, etc. And so I called him up and asked him, you know, told him what I had and asked him if he would be interested in helping me so immediately he goes i'm going to get you on larry king i've got top-notch connections in london i'll get you on tv in london you know blah 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 and he turned out to be completely full of you know what so i had given him the documents for safekeeping and he stole them he wouldn't give them back i go down to the police station to file my report that you know this guy stole my documents and i want them back and the detective, uh, a detective and a female cop, you know, come into the room where I'm sitting. And right off the bat, the cop says, you know, he's very afraid of you, right? And I said, excuse me. And he goes, he says you've been making death threats against him. And I said, that's ridiculous. I'm, I'm a journalist. I don't make death threats. I've been trying to get my documents back. What do I have to fill out to have you go get my documents back etc and he goes well it's not that simple he's filed a police complaint against you and he's seeking a restraining order and i said man you got to be kidding me you you have to be kidding me and he goes no this is a very serious matter so like a week later there's a knock on the door and i get served by the police to go to court for a restraining order i go to court and he gets a restraining order against me. The same month John Buchanan's articles began appearing in the Gazette, he got a call from Bob Fertig, an operator of a Democrat Party website and a Nazi history enthusiast. He'd encouraged John, then a registered Democrat, to run for president on the Republican Party ticket as an anti-war candidate, as a way of bringing more public attention to the Bush family Nazi links. John agreed to the plan and ended up running in the New Hampshire primaries in January of 2004 as one of 14 so-called 
fringe candidates against incumbent President Bush. According to his own account, Buchanan managed to secure 873 Republican votes along with conducting a number of interviews. Following the primaries, he was invited to fly down to the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. to discuss his success at the primaries and his convictions about Bush-Nazi links. Anticipating a short and interesting deviation from before returning to New Hampshire and ultimately catching a train back to Florida, John Buchanan explains what transpired when his plane arrived in Baltimore. So then this, this black woman cop from Baltimore, Washington Airport comes on the plane, comes up to the doorway of where coach starts, and so she's, you know, seven, six or seven rows away from me, but doesn't know it yet. And she says, will passenger John Buchanan please identify himself? And I go, oh, man, you know, this definitely can't be good. So I put my hand up, and she goes, sir, would you step forward? Now, now people in the plane are, like, freaking out and thinking I'm some kind of, you know, domestic terrorist or something. And they interrogated me for two and a half hours and said they had information I was plotting to assassinate Bush. <laughs> That's quite shocking. But then again, I mean, I'm not excusing it or anything, but this is around the time when the, there was a, a real spike in concern about uh, terrorism, but still, that, that's a very uh, remarkable uh, point that you're raising. Oh, yeah, a, a remarkable timing coincidence, but it gets even weirder. So I go that night, I freaked out when I, 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 did, I didn't even check into the hotel re, you know, reservation that Bob Furtick had made because I was paranoid to even go to my hotel, right? So I went to the National Press Club like 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 4.30 in the afternoon, and then ask if there, you know, where, where was there a restaurant close by? He go get something to eat. I think I was going to speak at like seven o'clock. So I went to this restaurant around the corner from the National Press Club, and then came back and just hid out at the National Press Club until it was, you know, time for me to make my speech. So I make my speech. So a, a Washington lawyer, and I forget his name, but a Washington lawyer comes up, and I tell the story of the Secret Service. So a Washington lawyer comes up to me after I speak and says, you know, I, uh, I, I, I want to pursue this with you. I'm an attorney, and I don't believe this is legitimate. I, I, from your description, I don't believe it was the Secret Service. You know, let's go back to your hotel and make a phone call. It's like, you know, 9 o'clock at night. So we, I go, well, I haven't actually checked in yet, but we can go and I'll check in. So we go to my hotel. We check in. So he has me call the head. He's sitting on the, my bed. You know, he, he asked me to call the Secret Service and report in because the two alleged agents had said they wanted to track my whereabouts at all time and I should call them once I've checked into my hotel, right? So I call the Secret Service Washington office and the guy answers the phone. And I go, yeah, my name is John Buchanan. I was interrogated today, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the guy says, sir, you're, you're committing a federal crime. And I said, excuse me, but what crime am I committing? And he goes, we have no information about you in our database. You were not interrogated by Secret Service officers today. And to make up such a story, even to the Secret Service, is a crime. And I went, you've you, you got to be kidding me. So the next morning before I left, I went to, to the Capitol and since I had run as a Republican, I go to the Republican office of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, and I just barge in and tell them what I'm there for. So they 
have these two investigators from the House Judiciary Committee come in and talk to me, and they call the, the, the Secret Service, and the Secret Service says they've never heard of me. Then they call Baltimore-Washington Airport, and Baltimore-Washington Airport says, we have no idea what you're talking about. We didn't take anybody off of an airplane today. So to this day, I can't figure that part out. And the prevailing theory, by the way, that came out in the next you know year or two as you know this story was just all over the place online the the consensus opinion in the US was that it was probably Carl Rove operating out of the White House to to set me up like that which is certainly possible in response to a question about whether George Herbert Walker Bush should take responsibility for his father's financial ties with the Nazis John Buchanan raised the point that George Bush senior took actions to conceal his father's wartime activities. He mentioned he had been contacted by an eminent historian, Herbert Parmet, author of the definitive biography of Prescott Bush. Parmet told Buchanan he was stunned by the documents that had been exposed. One of the reasons he was stunned was that when he had interviewed Daddy Bush for the biography, George H.W. Bush had categorically denied that any of this stuff was true and said, oh, you know, that's just a bunch of political BS. And then simultaneously with all that, three or four months before uh, I found the documents, uh, there was a book published that the Bush family paid for. They, they hired a, a, a Houston sports writer named Mickey Herskowitz, and he wrote a book called Duty, Honor, Country, The Life and Legacy of Prescott Bush. And I'm looking at the Amazon page right now for the book. And in the second paragraph, it says, you know, all the stuff the book covers. And it says, quote, it also deals honestly with Prescott Bush's alleged business relationships with Nazi industrialists and other accusations. I bought the book. And it is anything but deal honestly with his alleged business relationships with Nazi industrialists because it basically denies the story. <laughs> so I, I do hold him accountable for lying. For, uh, the, the exact phrase that Herbert Parmet used was, he looked me right in the eye and lied to me. Are there implications for this story and the cover-up that followed that has implications beyond the Bush family? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, I think, uh, again, with the passage of time, you know, over the last 15 years, I think we've seen, you know, multiple examples of it. But the classic one is right now with President Trump and the Saudi government over the murder of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And, and Trump has literally said repeatedly on the record, you know, I don't want to blow our business deals to sell weapons and stuff to Saudi Arabia just because, you know, he may have been involved in, in the killing of a journalist. And, and, and I think that's the timeless theme of, of the story, both, before, you know, many decades before I ever came along and many decades after I'll be dead, is that War profiteering is probably the biggest industry in the world when you really look at it. 
It cuts across all party lines and demographic lines and everything else. And then for obvious reason, generally speaking, it needs to be conducted in secrecy and covered up if there's any threat of it becoming public. Because I think if the American people or the people, not so much people of Canada, actually, for obvious reason, but if the American people, you know, ever really knew the total truth of what's been done in this country and by whom, I hope anyway they would be outraged and would take some kind of action to fix the problem. But I'm very pessimistic in that regard, particularly because of what's happened with President Trump over the last couple of weeks about the Khashoggi murder. That was award-winning investigative reporter and freelance journalist John Buchanan, author of articles appearing in the New Hampshire Gazette in 2003, documenting the links between the Bush family and the Nazi war machine. He's the author of Fixing America, Breaking the Stranglehold of Corporate Rule, Big Media, and the Religious Right, published by Trine Day. My name is Michael Welch, and you're listening to a special broadcast of the Global Research News Hour dedicated to the ignoble background of the 41st President of the United States on the occasion of his recent passing. The Global Research News Hour airs on several community and internet radio stations across Canada and the United States and is podcast to the site, globalresearch.ca. It would appear that George Bush Sr. not only inherited the proceeds of his father's Nazi collaborationist activities, he also inherited the approach of dealing with the official enemy. The documentary record reveals that the elder George Bush has had extensive dealings with the family of Osama bin Laden, public enemy number one after the 9-11 attacks. He was also connected to the same drug traffickers that he and his predecessors had pledged their nation to fight a war against. Professor Michelle Chosodovsky is an award-winning author, professor emeritus of economics at the University of Ottawa, and founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. He published and republished a number of articles detailing some of those connections, the Global Research News Hour had a chance to reach out to him on the same day of his state funeral to talk about some of those contacts. George Herbert Walker Bush was meeting the brother of Osama bin Laden. His name is Shafiq bin Laden. And it was in the context, essentially, it was in the context of a, a meeting of the, of the Carlisle group. Um, and uh, they met. Um, they met actually on the 10th as well as on the 11th. And the, the media actually never reported this until two, two years later. Um, in other words, while the World Trade Center was, was under attack, the Carlisle business uh, meeting at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel was ongoing with the brother of Osama bin Laden, Shafiq, and, uh, and, and, um, and, and various other personalities, including uh, Bush Sr., in other words, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. And, uh, you know, any uh, reasonable person would say, well, what on earth was the, the, the dad, Poppy, uh, doing with Osama's brother Shafiq on September 10th and 11th? Uh, when the brother of Osama bin Laden, allegedly, at that time, allegedly, was attacking the Pentagon, I'm sorry, the, the Pentagon and the World Trade Center. Mm. And uh, first of all, they didn't mention it. And then when they did cover it, they, they simply 
uh, dismissed any kind of relationship between the two events. Okay, um, the dad of uh, the dad of the sitting president of the United States was at the Ritz Carlton with the brother uh, of the terrorist who had attacked America, and it was not really a topic for for the headlines. It was it the whole thing was dismissed, and um, I mean um, if we look at uh, routine issues of land enforcement, we might ask, did the president not instruct uh, the law enforcement um, uh, communities, at, in other words, the FBI, who were investigating matters, to, to at least question um, Shafiq bin Laden and, and, and perhaps even question his dad? Um, and uh, so that we, we have to we have to ask those things because there was no objective investigative reporting of what of what was uh, what was happening uh, at the Ritz Carlton Hotel. And I should mention that there was the former Secretary of Defense Frank uh, Carlucci, and then the former State uh, Secretary of State James Baker were all there, and other members of the Bin Laden family. And, and it simply didn't get reported whatsoever. Professor Chosodovsky, uh, you mentioned that this meeting took place under the auspices of the Carlyle Group. Could you maybe expand a little bit? I mean, what exactly is the Carlyle Group, and, and how, are, how are Bin Laden and Bush connected? Well, essentially, the Carlyle Group is it, it's a, it, it's a big private equity conglomerate that manages uh, billions of dollars. Uh, uh, it, it manages the Bin Laden family wealth. It manages uh, um, various... Uh, uh, it, it, it is... I, I should say that the Bin Laden family is linked to the Saudi monarchy. Okay, that's very important. But in other words, it was a business meeting. But uh, there, there, there are too many coincidences uh, uh, why did it happen on the same day? Why were the Bin Ladens there? Uh, and, and there was simply no police investigation or interrogation of, of Osama's brother-in-law. Um, and uh, one would expect that at least Shafiq Bin Laden and the president's dad uh, might have been remanded in custody for questioning. It is a standard procedure, but it didn't happen. Um, but um, I, I think that uh, the, what this indicates is that there are alliances between two very wealthy families, and it has, and it's also tied into uh, to the history of Middle East geopolitics. It's the fact that Saudi Arabia supported Al Qaeda when they were first recruited in, in uh, you know, in, in 1979 uh, in the context of the Soviet-Afghan War. Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda, we know, is is a creation of the CIA, and uh, and that, of course, that really is the forbidden truth. The fact that that uh, the so-called enemy of America, number one enemy of America at the time, who was Osama bin Laden, had been recruited by the CIA um, with the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter. Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski playing a very key role in, in, in that whole agenda. And then the Saudi intelligence supported that endeavor. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and the Saudi monarchy and the Bin Laden family were financing. 
Now, people will say, uh, and that's the official kind of narrative, they'll say, well, he's a black sheep in the family, okay? He's the bad guy, talking about Osama. But his brother Shafiq is okay. He's the business partner of the, you know, the dad of yeah. the sitting president. Now, if people believe all that, <laughs> well, yeah. I don't believe it. Well, At least we have to ask questions about these things. Now, talking about uh, family connections and that, that kind of, uh, you know, a bad apple uh, argument, I mean, there are other associations. Uh, you, know, you, you pointed out in a recently republished article that the Bush family had ties with the Mexican drug cartels through the Salinas family. Uh, President uh, Carlos uh, Salinas was, uh, you know, he was the president of Mexico, but he had this, I guess, this uh, black sheep brother, uh, Raul, who was, and a father, um, you know, so, yeah, but it, it seems like there's a bit of a, a coincidence there as well in terms of the way the Bush family does things. And, and of course, you point out the Bush was well aware of uh, Salinas's role in the Mexican drug trade. Um, and, and true, Carlos was the president of Mexico. They had to deal with each other in order to broker a, a free trade agreement, but... You know, could you speak a little bit more about any indications of the Bush family's interest uh, in the Salinas family beyond what was required in a state-to-state relationship? Well, I, I think that uh, essentially that relationship was there ultimately to sustain the drug trade. And, and, and uh, the, you know, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars behind that. Um, and it's not strictly linked to a criminal cartel. Uh, it's a much broader uh, process. But uh, certainly George uh, Herbert Walker Bush had personal ties with uh, Carlos Salinas de Gortiari, uh, who actually uh, is in Washington t- today, uh, well, on Wednesday, for the, for the, for the funeral. Of, uh, of George H.W. Uh, Bush. Um, and then uh, Salinas, uh, I mean, George H.W. Uh, Bush also had links to, uh, to um, uh, the father of, um, of, um, uh, of uh, Carlos, who's called Raul Salinas Lozano. Um, and uh, Raul Salinas Lozano was a leading figure in the narcotics scene, uh, involving also the, the black sheep, Raul Salinas de Gortari. Now, um, and let me talk about the, the black sheep in, in, in the Bush family. It just so happens that Jeb Bush, uh, who was, uh, who was governor of California, uh, sorry, governor of the Sunshine State of Florida, and he was also presidential candidate in, uh, in 2015 and uh, eventually dropped out. But Jeb Bush had a very close personal uh, relationship with Raul Salinas de Gortiari, who was, who was the brother of Mexico's former president, Carlos. And as we know, that Raul was considered to be the drug kingpin, and he was... He was um, um, he was prosecuted and imprisoned in the wake of his uh, brother's presidency. And at the same time, Carlos, um, who, um, who became president and who signed uh, the, 
the North American Free Trade Agreement, together with Mulroney and um, and Bush Senior. Well, in in the wake of his presidency, he was um, he was framed, and um, he was framed and accused of having a link to the drug trade, and uh, he went into exile to to Ireland, and then subsequently came back, and. Uh, uh, from what I understand, and that's very important, of course, for Canada and the United States, both uh, Bush Sr. as well as Brian Mulroney must have been aware of the links of the Salinas presidency to organized crime. Um, it, it was known in, in Mexico. And then, uh, <laughs> this is interesting because if you looked at some of the press reports, um, in, in the you know in the 1990s, um, um, so the, the the free trade agreement was signed in, in 1992, and I recall um, um, the particularly the Texas and Florida media they would they 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 actually did cover it, particularly when when Salinas de Gortari was went into exile and Raúl was was um, imprisoned, and I'll, I'll read you the quote. Um, uh, the intelligence on corruption, especially the drug traffickers, has always been there, okay? And that was a quote from a, a DEA, DEA official. But, but, quote, we were under instructions not to say anything negative about Mexico. It was a no-no since NAFTA was a hot political football. Okay? A hot political football. Why? Because the president of the country who actually signed it is linked to organized crime. Mm. And that, that is something they knew, that something our government, Canadian government knew, and the U.S. government knew as well, and they certainly didn't reveal it to public opinion. And then once that got signed, well, it, then, then, of course, uh, uh, the, both Raul and Carlos were framed. Carlos went into exile, and Raul was imprisoned. And he was subsequently uh, freed and, and so on. So the, the, the Salinas de Gortari family is clean um, as, far as, uh, as, as far as today's reality is concerned. Well, uh, Professor Chalcedovsky, I, I mean, just to perhaps summarize, as uh, Bush Sr. is being laid to rest and there's a lot of laudatory uh, commentary about him and his presidency, um, being made in the mainstream media. I'm wondering if, if maybe I could give you a chance to uh, provide your own assessment of uh, Bush Sr.'s true role within the power establishment of the United States and, and what it says about that establishment. Well, I think these, as an individual and a personality, he was an instrument of a much broader complex process with dominant uh, economic and financial interests. Uh, the drug trade today is a multi-billion dollar undertaking. Uh, organized crime is, in, in a sense, is also an instrument of that trade. Uh, Afghanistan produces 90, more than 90% of the, the world's uh, heroin, uh, which is channeled illegally out of Afghanistan, which is occupied by the United States. Okay? So we're not dealing with, it's not, we're not going to change history with another dynasty, okay? These, these 
these individuals are they obey orders they are they 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 personify a process and we have to address the much broader process uh, of of what some people call the deep state uh, and it's and 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 the the kind of evolution that we're facing today with the possibilities of war and and and, uh, and destruction Joining me now with his reflections on the legacy of George Herbert Walker Bush is Stephen Lendman, a former host of the Global Research News Hour and of the Progressive Radio News Hour on the Progressive Radio Network. Stephen has been writing on national and international issues since 2005. He's a 2008 Project Censored winner and recipient of the 2011 Mexican Journalists Award, International Journalism Award. Uh, he's also edited and contributed to the 2014 volume, Flashpoint in Ukraine, How the U.S. Drive on, for Hegemony Risks World War III. Stephen Lenman, it's good to have you back on the Global Research News Hour. Oh, Michael, thank you very much. It's great to be on with you. Stephen, the crimes and misdemeanors of George Bush, Sr., during and even preceding his terms in the White House, are probably too numerous to count in the short time we have together. Um, Listening to a lot of the press coverage, you'd think the greatest sin, that his greatest sin, was that he didn't like broccoli. Uh, late night, yeah, uh, and then late night talk show hosts are, are using the recent funeral as more ammunition against their favorite target, Donald Trump. Uh, not that I'm a fan of Donald Trump, but uh, at the same time, uh, I, I think that we need to really you know, get a proper perspective on this man's background. What are the items that you wish the press would mention as they recount Bush's record? Well, there's no question that the uh, the Bush family, I mean Bush uh, Senior, Bush One, I guess he's called, uh, is really a crime family. I wrote an article about uh, the Clintons uh, uh, a number of years ago, and I titled it the, the Clinton Crime Family. Well, I could write the same article about the Bush family, calling it the Bush Crime Family, and indeed it is. It goes back uh, to the World War One area. It really goes back to the John D. Rockefeller era, so that's really around the turn of the ninth, the turn of the twentieth century. Back then and through World War One, and uh, and all sorts of things uh, from from that period uh, to the present day, uh, with no Bush in power right now. But uh, I guess there are younger Bush generations. Who knows? Maybe well, uh, there's Jeb Bush in Florida. Uh, there may be, maybe, maybe some of the younger ones will come up, come, come up and uh, run for office and get elected. But uh, the Bush family goes back many, many years. Uh, there's so, so much about them. It's just, 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 just so odious, Michael. Yeah, no. uh, back in the 1930s, early 1940s, the collaboration with Nazi Germany, Prescott Bush, uh, with, uh, with, with, uh, uh, Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, doing business with the Nazis. So did a lot of other U.S. corporations. Big names. Uh, some of them were, were exposed. I think most of them got away with it. Nothing was done to them. Some of them were exposed. Brown Brothers Harriman had its assets seized. Uh, there was one other company I wrote about to the same thing. I forget which one it was, but we had that going on. As far as uh, Bush one goes, my goodness, I mean, his record uh, as a congressman, CIA director, envoy to China, uh, vice president and president, uh, in the, in the, uh, a second article that I wrote, I talked about his war on Panama and the course of the Gulf War in 1991. I mean, just horrific wars. Uh, most people don't even realize that America went to war with Panama in 1989. Yeah, and, uh, Noriega. Said, I believe he, after that war, he used the expression that uh, we finally managed to lick, lick the Vietnam Syndrome. 
Yeah, we sure as heck did, especially post 9-11. Mm. But uh, the, the legacy of Bush 1 and, of course, Bush 2, the whole family, is, uh, is pretty odious, Michael. Yeah. I know that, uh, well, just uh, w- one point that I, I think we really need to touch on is that there was the infamous uh, Willie Horton ads, and that was a, a, a black prisoner who had been in the... Uh, in, in the uh, in Michael Dukakis's state, he'd been in what was called a furlough program, and he was let out. And during that time, I mean, he'd apparently killed someone and, and, and raped um, a woman. And they showed these pictures of this uh, violent-looking black man, and it was clearly a dog whistle to a lot of you know, potential voters who, who had harbored some primordial fears about... Uh, you know, racist fears, but he triggered that sort of stuff. And that legacy has continued uh, even through, uh, you know, since then with the Clintons and, you know, using the super predator and, you know, concerns about crime and so on, and right up to Trump and, I mean, the things that he's uh, I mean, perhaps built on. But I, I think that's kind of a, a significant um, dimension of this, uh, of oh, his record. In, indeed, Michael. Of course, it's symptomatic of dirty politics in America, and, I mean, not in America, of course. This stuff goes on in many, many countries. Uh, I think maybe politics and dirty belong in the same sentence. Uh, and nearly, uh, <laughs> not, not, not 100% of the time, but very, very much a, a great deal of the time. And certainly in Western countries. I mean, you expect this kind of stuff in, in despotic countries. Of course, they don't need to pull these stunts in despotic countries. They have elections. Well, they call them elections, as we know, Michael. But uh, and, and maybe maybe uh, somebody is put up against uh, the ruling authority that automatically wins. Just just to trickle a few votes, so a few percentage of votes. The, to the opposition candidate to make it look like a legitimate election. I know this went on a couple of times in Egypt in the last uh, six, eight, ten years or so. Uh, it's gone on in other countries. Uh, I mean, it went on when, when Mubarak was president of Egypt and uh, when also uh, Sisi, uh, uh, the U.S. War College graduate, uh, he did that, I, I believe, twice. Once, uh, well, about a year or so ago, uh, rigged an election to make certain that, that he won. And uh, the easiest way is to be sure that nobody uh, uh, competing with the, with, with the ruling authority that wants to stay the ruling authority stays in power. But again, it's dirty politics, and I guess it, it's, it's as refined in America as any place else, Michael. Well, I think that one, uh, one very important point also is the Iran-Contra, you know, arms for hostages okay. deal. He was a major uh, 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 architect of that whole uh, you know, dynamic, you know, happening uh, under Reagan. And that's uh, you know that that certainly has ramifications even for today. It sure did. And then uh, Bush one pardoned the uh, Iran Contra villains, about half a dozen of them. Uh, Elliot Abrams was one. Most of the names are names people wouldn't recognize. A couple of them I had to scratch my head to see if I remember them, but I certainly remember Iran Contra in the eighties. Just a devastating thing, and uh, it really was. I mean, it went on in Nicaragua. That was a that was Nicaragua, but uh, the same kind of horrors went on in the, in the El Salvador and uh, Guatemala, of course, uh, earlier. That Guatemala began back in the Eisenhower administration, but uh, just just awful stuff that goes on. And uh, I mean, Bush uh, Bush one was up to his ears in this stuff. Again, uh, his long career beginning uh, in Congress and continuing through his time as president. And uh, it was kind of surprising that he didn't win a second term. I think it was because Ross Perot got into the race in, uh, in uh, 19, 
1991. No, 1990. Good Lord, I got my years mixed up. (laughs) 92. 1992, what am I saying? 1992, always even years. And uh, Ross Perot, the only independent candidate who ever took a sizable percentage of the vote and swung the election to, to Bill Clinton. I don't remember the percentages, Michael. You may not either. Mm. But I don't think I don't think uh, Clinton won a majority of the vote. But he, but he won a polarity and became president. And uh, I, I, mean, I thought that was a relief to get somebody other than a Bush in power. Yeah, I think it probably turned out even worse than, than having Bush won. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I, I don't think we can let uh, the Bush record go without uh, mentioning the Persian Gulf War, and that was the first post-Cold War um, conflict, and of course that had devastating consequences. Uh, it was uh, a war that needn't have happened. It was an illegal war. It was, uh, you know, there, there was the sanctions that followed, and this is all uh, part of uh, <laughs> Pappy Bush's uh, large crusade to... Uh, well, I guess to, to uh, you know, like you just mentioned, knocking the Vietnam syndrome. But uh, I, I find that it, it, it quite distressing that uh, the initiating that war uh, is, is, has been a feather in his cap when it should be something that he was condemned for. Well, Noriega in Panama and Saddam in Iraq had one thing in common. Uh, they were former U.S. assets, very valued U.S. assets, until they, they forgot who was boss, something to that effect. And then America went after to get rid of both of them. And, uh, and Saddam was suckered into a situation with Kuwait, a, a Kuwait cross-drilling, stealing Iraqi oil. Uh, uh, Saddam tried to resolve it diplomatically. Repeated efforts failed. And, uh, and this was a scheme to get him to become belligerent against Kuwait, which he did. He fell for the scheme. I don't think he was a dummy, but he certainly was not very smart in, in falling for the U.S. scheme, which is really what it was, to get him to be belligerent against uh, Kuwait, to give uh, the U.S. Uh, a reason to attack him and depose him. Well, he, didn't, he wasn't deposed under Bush 1. That waited for Bush 2 to happen in 2003. Uh, Bush uh, Bush one didn't go to Baghdad. Uh, he, I, he was criticized for that, but uh, Bush two took care of that. But he, he initiated the genocidal sanctions on Iraq, and that was maybe the, his greatest crime of all. And one of the UN Oil for Food uh, representatives, UN Oil for Food representatives, uh, two of them, one of them made the comment that that, that these sanctions were responsible for f- killing 5,000 Iraqi children under age five every month while they were in force. This was Bush 1. Of all the crimes he committed, I can't think of any greater than that, Michael. Hmm. Now, uh, one more point. I, I think that, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with this, uh, the, when uh, the Soviet Union folded, there, uh, there were negotiations between the Americans and, and Gorbachev, and Gorbachev was left with the understanding, while Bush was in power, that uh, there would be no further encroachment on uh, you know towards Russia, and uh, I think that very clearly did not happen. I mean, to to what extent uh, does Bush deserve uh, criticism for allowing that encroachment to happen? Well, the only criticism of Bush one on that, I don't know how genuine he was in negotiations. Uh, maybe more genuine than, than the current crop of people around today in America. But uh, the encroachment toward Russia's borders did not begin on his watch. 
It began under the Clinton co-presidency, which is what it was, and then it accelerated later post-9-11 and, uh, and literally crawling right up to Russia's borders are the two countries that are not uh, incorporated into NATO. I mean, the con- these countries are made, na- made NATO members. The only two that, that are not NATO members, important ones that border on Russia, are Ukraine and Georgia, and comments have been made uh, by America and Ukraine that it's just a matter of time before America gets both of these countries in, into NATO. And this is a red line for, for Moscow. Uh, Putin, even in diplomatic language, has basically said that Russia simply won't, won't stand for this. It, would hit, it wouldn't go to war over this, but it would certainly take uh, a retaliatory action to protect itself, strengthen its border. The idea of, uh, of both of these countries, again, the border in Russia, to have NATO troops stationed right along the border with Russia. That's an intolerable situation. If you can imagine Chinese or Russian or any other foreign troops stationed along the Canadian border or Mexican border with America, that would be a reason for war, for America to go to war with them. Hmm. But this, this, this is what probably will happen in the future. Good Lord, I, I, hope it, I hope something happens and it doesn't, Michael, but it seems that things continue to get worse, not better, in bilateral U.S. relations with Russia. But that would really be something that could be provocative enough to provoke confrontation between the two countries. Okay. Just one last point, and maybe if you can make it in like about a minute or less. Uh, does Bush, in your mind, like what distinguishes him from, because uh, I mean, I, I think it's, you'd probably agree, I mean, virtually every president going back to Truman, uh, could, should have been hanged under Nuremberg for war crimes. But is there anything that distinguishes Bush uh, Sr. from the other presidents, or is it just like just another uh, <laughs> uh, one of the one of uh, another P in that pod of uh, commanders and murderers and chief? I think it's basically the same. Although I've made this point about U.S. regimes, each each new one seems to exceed the worst of the previous one. It certainly has been true since the 1990s. Well, the Clintons absolutely were worse than Bush 1, and then the Bush-Cheney, Bush 2 and Cheney, worse than the Clintons, Obama worse than, 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 than Bush-Cheney, and Trump worst of all. I mean, I just can't imagine what's going to happen uh, with the next regime after Trump. World War Three, Michael? Or maybe we'll get it while Trump is still in power. Yeah, that's a concern. Stephen, thanks so much for your time. Michael, thank you. We've been speaking with Stephen Lenman, a writer, a journalist, and a past broadcaster. Uh, you can find his articles at the website stephenlendman.org. We've come to the end of our program this week. Thank you for listening to this special presentation on the life and legacy of George Herbert Walker Bush on the Global Research News Hour. Music this week was A New World by Purple Planet Music. Find this and other selections from the site purple-planet.com. The Global Research News Hour airs weekly on radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is also podcast on the independent news site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. My name is Michael Welch. Please join us again next week and stay tuned for your next regularly scheduled program.